My guest, Derek Lane, and I continue our conversation mapping the Agile Manifesto and its 12 principles to making better barbecue. In this episode, we cover principles 7 to 10, and I recommend staying until the end because Derek shares how to keep things simple in order to make amazing brisket. It's the pursuit, the constant, never-ending pursuit of value. And value as defined by the customer. Now we're back to number one. It's to make the customer happy, to satisfy the customer's goals. Is that to to increase business? Is it to move into a new market? Is it to experiment with the product? Is it to uh, reduce costs or reduce uh, expenses? Is it to reduce the number of people it takes to maintain some part of their business? Is it to get the best barbecue that you can get, you know, this side of the Mississippi, where whichever side you're on? Welcome to The Long Way Around the Barn, where we discuss many of today's technology adoption and transformation challenges and explore varied ways to get to your desired outcomes. There's usually more than one way to achieve your goals. Sometimes the path is simple. Sometimes the path is long, expensive, complicated, and or painful. In this podcast, we explore options and recommended courses of action to get you to where you're going now. The Long Way Around the Barn is brought to you by Trility Consulting. For those wanting to defend or extend their market share, Trility simplifies, automates, and secures your world, your way. Learn how you can experience reliable delivery results at Trility.io. The next one of these principles, working software, is the primary measure of progress. I love it. I love it. I love it. It kind of harkens back to the, we prefer working software over documentation or even my original commentary, which is, hey man, showing up, there's a time and a place to show up at the PowerPoint or a Word doc or whatever it is that you're generating. But the reality is that if you're a technologist and the client hired you to deliver some technology, they want to see technology. Well, again, uh, if we kind of abstract this a little bit, you know, it's, it's value. Whatever the value is, is the primary measure of progress, the delivery of value. Okay, how much better are you delivering value? Um, we're spending, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to have consultants come in or we've hired extra agile, you know, experts or whatever. Um, how do we know if we're, if it's making a difference? How do we know if we're getting better? Okay, well, the delivery of value is how we measure progress. I like that question that you asked, which is, so you've adopted X, are you delivering more value than you were? That's really the conversation. Exactly. The, the, for me, the, if, if it's possible, and, and it's really hard because there's so many facets to what is agility. How do we know if agility is occurring or is possible or is improving? So that at any point in time, we have the ability to adapt. So how do we know? Well, it's the pursuit, the constant, never-ending pursuit of value. And value as defined by the customer. Now we're back to number one. It's to make the customer happy, to satisfy the customer's goals. Is that to 
to increase business? Is it to move into a new market? Is it to experiment with a product? Is it to uh, reduce costs or reduce uh, expenses? Is it to reduce the number of people it takes to maintain some part of their business? Is it to get the best barbecue that you can get, you know, this side of the Mississippi, where whichever side you're on? Whatever the pursuit of value is, to me, is, 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 the, is the closest to a nutshell that I can put agility in. And in this case, how do we know if we're, what, everything we're doing, whatever that is, is making us better? Uh, the way we measure progress with agility is by delivering value. So I'm standing beside you. We've been smoking this brisket for quite a while. I'm able to stand beside you when you lift the lid, if and when you open the box. I'm able to stand beside you as you're putting more meat or uh, wood in. I'm able to stand beside you as you succumb to the temptation or to my persuasion to just let me cut into it just a little bit and taste it. But the reality is I'm there beside you. We're journeying together, and I know things are happening, happening, but... Um, I'm even more incited to continue on this journey with you if if you act like you didn't notice that I took a little piece off that brisket when you turned around. Or if you said, hey, I know it's not quite ready yet, but let me give you just a little sneak peek of the sauce that I, or the rub that I used on this or whatever. I mean, yes. And, and if you're the customer, imagine how different whatever we call a project would be if we had that customer going through the same experience with the, the team that is developing and delivering that value, because now the level of communication, the level of transparency, the level of trust, you get to see, you know the effort I put into it. You know the decisions I've made. If we've had a discussion, you know pretty much why I did everything I did um, to the degree that, that you were interested or it made sense. Um, and uh, barbecue in this case is no difference, it, no different um, it's great to go to uh, your whatever your local barbecue place is. Um, go on a day or a period of time when they're not busy. Uh, call ahead if you want to. Ask uh, if you can go in the back and see their pits. Ask if you can see talk to the pit master. You can just learn about what kind of wood they use or what their their technique is. Um, that gives uh, you a different view, a different experience, um, a better appreciation for. Uh, the, the, the value that you show up and get as a customer, you just get in line or you order from the menu and, and it magically shows up. Um, that's the way most people want to order their technology and their products, but the reality is that uh, it rarely gets them what they want. It's, it's kind of like ordering a very specific order, but what, you, what shows up is not really what you ordered. And that's where I heard, have heard someone uh, characterize in uh, past lives that it's fine to deliver as committed, um, and the customer or the client may say, you know, you've done well, good job, thank you for your time. But an exceptional experience for the class customer is when they are delighted, when they are beside themselves with happiness because you not only did what you said you would do, but you delivered a version of that and or more that helped them realize their goals quicker or differently or more valuably. It's working software as the primary measure of progress as it relates to the technology, but it still, to your point, rolls up to satisfy the customer. And satisfy isn't just, here's brisket. It's here's brisket that you've now canceled the rest of your afternoon so you can just marinate, 
soak, and enjoy the meat sweats that go with it. That's really, I think, what is intended by satisfy the customer. It's the level that uh, Simon Sinek talks about when he says that everybody needs to understand their why, um, the golden why. That the, the idea, people, people don't care about what you do. They care about why you do it. And, and that is very true with barbecue. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's, it's evident in this particular principle. Um, you said something else that I think is, is very much buried in this. It's taken me years to try to, to find a way to talk about. And that is that um, we often talk about backlogs and, and effort, uh, level of effort, and, and when will I get to see something and when will things be done? And we talk about commitment in that context. From my standpoint, I feel like one of the light bulbs that demonstrated that I got it uh, that I, I, I really was beginning to understand what agility is, is when I understand, when I, I began to understand committing to a backlog is wrong. It's incorrect. It's making, it's efficiency uh, in the same sense that we've always been doing projects uh, in, the, in the waterfall sense. It's traditional that has carried over even into the agile space and we haven't realized it. We, we, we're still polluted with these concepts and it affects what we do and how we do it. Um, instead, I would submit that we should agree to be committed to the values and principles of the Agile Manifesto. I think if we're committed to those and we agree that the things, decisions we make uh, and the uh, behavior that we, we, we subscribe to will illustrate and demonstrate the values and principles, we can trace it directly back to that. And the illustration that I use for a lot of teams is um, if we were an archaeologist and we uh, were looking at for evidence of agility in your company, would we find it? Would we find hieroglyphics that demonstrate that agility might have been here? Would we find frequent delivery of value? How frequent? What, what does that frequency mean in the context of whatever the value is you're delivering? Um, would we find dinosaur tracks? You know, would we find fossils? Would we find evidence of agility? Um, so whether it's lean or agile or human-centered design, would we find evidence of that? And by evidence, I don't mean uh, you know, burn down charts. I don't mean um, uh, sticky notes on a whiteboard. I, I, I'm talking about the kind of evidence that says, not that it says we were doing practices, because you and I both know we've seen those things as evidence in environments where agility did not live. So that's not evidence of agility. Sticky notes on a whiteboard and burn down charts, burn up charts, whatever, those, that's not evidence of agility. That's evidence of a practice, or that's evidence of, of, of that someone uh, thought this needed to be created and it was left behind. Um, so what is evidence of agility? Evidence of agility is a, a group of people <clears throat> who um, trust each other. That's evidence of agility. Now back to uh, principle number uh, five. Uh, let's create an environment. Let's invite people who are motivated into that environment. Let's explain to them what our problem is. Let's let them trust them to, to do it. Um, so there's lots of things that are evidence of agility. Um, but I, and, and, and I think that the way we achieve that is to not commit to uh, a set of backlog, uh, a set of things in a backlog uh, that is going to change. 
Um, and that should change as we learn more. Um, if we assume that, then, then we realize, that, well, that's really not a good thing to commit to. It's too fluid. We should instead commit to the values and principles of the Agile Manifesto. If we do that, first of all, they're not as fluid. Uh, second of all, the deeper we understand them, the better we can apply them. And third, it becomes a, 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 a common shared baseline ruler that we can all use and talk about how we can improve it and how, how are we interpreting it and are we applying it in a consistent way. So the net still is working product. Yes. The evidence is still, the measure of progress is a working product. Evidence of agility is the elements that allowed you to create a working product. So it's the, it's the frequency of delivery. It's the delivery of value on a regular basis. It's the delighted customer. It, those are, that's evidence. The measure of progress, so we can make progress while we're still on our way. Right, we're going to go on a. We're going to drive from wherever we are to the other end of the country. Uh, we can make progress without getting to the end. We don't have to wait till we get to the end to say, "Did we make progress?" So, archaeological evidence, um, to some extent, of agility then is additionally articulated in the next principle. Um, the eighth one on this list, which is agile processes promote sustainable development. Explained, that means sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. The reality of the situation is we're talking about um, perhaps uh, some form of psychological safety. We're talking about a healthy environment. And we're talking about a team that's composed of people who are all equally able to say, this is what I think, and this is why. And they together uh, in the self-organizing team's idea down in 10 that we'll look at are saying together, we know we're in a marathon. We know the work that's in front of us. We're able to adapt to change and invite that as necessary as such. We're not going to kill ourselves on this iteration. We're not going to kill ourselves on the next six iterations because this could be a 200-iteration project with multiple major release drops along the way that are publicized by the marketing teams and so forth. It's lasting. What type of team and people environment do we need to create in order for people to last? The way you described it as the first statement, Agile Processes Promote Sustainable Development, being explained by the second statement. Um, the sponsors, developer, and users. Well, this is the first time we've heard sponsor. Before we heard customer and we heard business and we heard developers, the first time we've heard sponsor in the, the sequence of, of principles. This is where we begin to realize that I can have a customer who can be an end user and I need to delight them. I can also have a customer which is the person who's paying, aka the sponsor to develop or deliver this product. Um, they, what delights each one of them is not necessarily the same thing. And the more complex the value that you're delivering, the more likely it is that what makes, uh, that will delight them is not the same thing. Uh, and end user for Google uh, is very happy to get fast results. Um, the fact that ads can influence the results means that I may not get what I want. The fact that my history influences the results and they've updated their algorithm for that. However, that satisfies the desire of 
Google the company. That's how they're making money. They want their ads to be effective. Uh, they want the customers of the ads, the people who are paying Google to place the ads, to be happy so that they continue to advertise on their platform. So Google, the person, the, the uh, sponsor paying for the development delivery of products, uh, their goals, what makes them happy, what makes them, um, uh, what gives them a competitive advantage is not the same thing as the people who are the end users. And here we get a little bit of insight into that because we're talking about the sponsors, the developers and users of that. So we realized that the, the ecosystem of people um, and the roles they play is broader than we've covered so far. You just need to think about those roles and the people and you need to adapt, which is all what, what agility is, is adapting as you learn more things. Um, I think the, the, the next interesting thing about this principle is, remember principle number four, business people and developers should work together the daily throughout the project. Where are the business people in this principle? Because the sponsors could be uh, the actual client who's paying for us, um, who has end users. Now we're back to, okay, business people should be part of that development team. And then, of course, end users are the end users of that client, the, the people who buy, buy things from the florist. So I think what's happened here, and it's a very subtle thing, and I didn't see it for a very long time, is that the authors of the Agile Manifesto did something that we run over so quick, it's not even a, a gigantic speed bump. And that is that they went from business and developers should work together daily into, okay, we assume that's happening by the time we get to principle eight. And so it's encapsulated in this idea of developers and the developers here uh, might not mean just the technologist in, in the case of software technology. It could be everyone. Now we're back to our original idea. Everyone involved in delivering value should be in, included in that. So if that's the marketing department, if that's HR, if that's legal, whoever it is, they should be part of that conversation, which means now we're back to principle number four. They should work together daily. Right, right. They're interwoven. I mean, this is a, this is a tapestry. These are not single threads that could be practiced alone. Absolutely. And that's how I think most people see these as, as individual discrete values and principles, when in reality, it's really more of a network graph. Every one of them is connected to every other one. Um, so barbecue, how, do, how does this relate to barbecue? Um, I think agile processes uh, promote sustainable development in that it is difficult. We talked about uh, cleaning your pit. Uh, before and that, and that that can you can get debris in the way that can actually um, get in the way of you delivering a consistent or a, a good product at least on a regular basis. Um, if you don't, if part of your process, your regular process, not necessarily every time you 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 cook, but if you don't have something that says every so often I'm going to uh, you know clean out the ashes, I'm going to check for debris, I'm going to. I'm going to wash my meat. We mentioned about that earlier. About these are these are consistent things. Doing these things, um, how does that? What does that mean with an agile process? What, how is it related to that? Because it gives us more consistent results. It becomes sustainable. We get to this idea of sustainable pace, which is also uh, embedded uh, in this to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. The more common phrase we use is sustainable pace. Um, that's also in the first statement, promote sustainable development. It's sustainable pace. Because in reality, you may need to work more than 40 hours. 
the intent of 40 hours was to say, let's don't burn people out to the point that they can no longer think when that's the critical value add that they have. So let's don't get them to exhausted point um, where they'll either leave the project or with, with all their domain knowledge and everything else. Let's, let's stop before then. Let's make it reasonable. Um, sometimes it's going to be 45. Maybe it's going to be 50. Maybe sometimes it'll be more than that. But we should be uh, aiming at something that's reasonable and sustainable um, for everyone. That makes sense. So in context of the, you know, archaeological examples of agility, looking inside some particular culture or subculture, that brings us to the next one as well, which is pretty interesting because the implications, how it spiders into the, the, the team, the team construct, the team behaviors, the team attitudes, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. That's one of my favorite conversations here. Now, from my perspective, this leads into all kinds of things. So continuous delivery pipelines, continuous test, uh, security by design, all kinds of conversations like that. Good design enhances agility. For years and years and years, we've had the merits of this architectural behavior over this architectural behavior or the merits of this design structure or this design pattern and so forth, talking about lots of the tools and the toolboxes. My favorite thing out of this, though, is still a people conversation. I believe this again points back to people and relationships. Continuous attention doesn't just mean automate all of the things in your infrastructure as a code environment or your continuous deployment environment. From my perspective, at the most fundamental level, continuous attention to technical excellence is not only having a group of people that are pursuing mastering their craft, but it's practices like test-driven development, pairing, pair switching, promiscuous pairing, mob programming, finding ways to enhance and lift and amplify people and people together. It's still organic. It's still relational. It's still people. We can add tools, but it's still people. I, I definitely think that's a great way to interpret the continuous attention phrase. It's definitely uh, people is who we're talking about paying a con continuous attention I think the I think this exposes this principle exposes one of the long held and long promoted uh, we've always done it that way it's a it's a good industry uh, saying and that is this idea of best practices the the that to me that is uh, that's that's it's severely flawed in a number of ways um, the way that it's often used in in most companies um, this principle exposes that while you may know the, you may have a level of skill, uh, pursuit of mastery that you mentioned, I may have a level of uh, proven ability that it delivers value in some way, but the, the point at which I say this is the bar, aka our, uh, our expectation, this is our best practice, and we document it, and we promote it, and we make sure everybody's doing it, that is the exact second at which we quit innovating. That's the exact second in which our agility begins to go down. It's the exact second in which people will, will uh, be uh, reprimanded for thinking and trying to make something better. Well, it's consistent with other behaviors that we sometimes see in companies or teams or projects whereby we say, well, that person is responsible for the user experience. That person is responsible for regulatory compliance. 
that person is responsible for data. And a challenge that comes along with those types of designations, similar to what you're saying, is after it's stated, it then becomes no one else's responsibility as their primary thought process. So I tend to favor, you know, part of the idea propagated by Mike Cohn and user stories, user stories applied, estimating all of that is that a user story and its associative acceptance criteria actually reflect all of the personas required in order, in order to deliver that user story, which then is a component of perhaps a larger epic or whatever theme to the light of customer. But inside those acceptance criteria, those things actually reflect all of the roles. And so technically, if we are a team, a self-organizing team, and we together, composed of many different roles, are responsible for delivering the software, security is everybody's job, in my opinion. User experience is everybody's job, in my opinion. Uh, delivering well is everyone's job. But one of the ways I've liked to mix it up is instead of designating and then you become this thing forever for this particular breakout, Derek, you're handling user experience. But for the next breakout, you're handling regulatory compliance. And so it forces everybody out of their behavioral patterns to say, well, this is my expertise. I do data, dude. I don't do user experience. That's that other person. Well, those are interesting conversations to have. Continuous attention to technical excellence I think it requires you to think broader than just your personal favorite sweet spot. I completely agree. And I think another, an, an, in addition to that, uh, which is a huge problem, uh, people, people get essentially assigned and identified. So what you've described, as I heard it, was the assignment of some role or characteristic or uh, responsibility. I think the same thing is also true with regard to the idea of I introduce Matthew as the data uh, expert on this particular thing, and that means now until, uh, you know, forever, you have been put in that box. And that means that I don't, not only do you not think about things outside of that, I don't listen to you about things outside of that because you're the data guy. You don't know squat about user experience or about whatever. Well, okay, so I'm devaluing the fact that you are an individual and, and that we have interactions and that you are a knowledge worker. I'm, I'm, I am uh, deferring all of those questions to a, a constrained, limited uh, number of people. Um, and I'm, I'm also ignoring some great innovation that uh, I, I'm not only ignoring it, I'm, I'm intentionally excluding it from ever happening because we've squeezed it out of the process. Now we're back to continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Innovation enhances agility. I, I, I think another characteristic here is there's technical excellence and then there's good design. Those are not the same thing. They're, they're discrete things that were called out here. I think in barbecue, technical excellence might mean, you know, I, I, I do have good fire management. I understand the mechanics of, 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 of how a, a particular pit draws. Um, how to deal with the, the managing not only the fire, but the smoke. I need to manage the heat. I need to, uh, is there a cold spot? Is there a hot spot? Is there, is there a certain uh, element that I'm going to put on the smoker that even for a short period of time is going to get way too much smoke so that it's going to ruin 
the value, my ability to deliver value with that item. Um, there's a lot of things here that we could talk about um, that are the technical excellence part. Uh, good ingredients uh, make a big difference. Um, in just an average set of skill, you can end up with a lot better barbecue if you really get the good. And I don't necessarily mean more expensive. I just mean you have to, it comes down to quality, not, not price. Um, but the design is also important. And that's back to uh, things I've talked about, like uh, uh, the order in which you want things to come off the smoker so that everybody gets to eat everything. Everything's kind of uh, completed at the same time. Uh, I have to plan what order to put things on the smoker. Um, everything doesn't go on at the same time. Um, if I've got something that's going to take 8 or 10 or 12 hours, I may have to wait until two hours before that to put something on. Uh, cobbler's not going to take that long, so I need to put it on, you know, an hour or two hours before. It'll have more than enough smoke. It'll be perfectly done, um, even if it, everything's raw when I put it on there, wh whatever that might mean. So uh, now we're getting to the point of both of those are intentional, and I think that's the continuous attention piece. It's intentional. Only people can do it. You can't automate it. And it improves our ability to innovate, to, to come up with new ideas, to not constrain ourselves to the way we've always done it, not only by putting people in a box, not only by saying this isn't the best practice. Well, how are your best practices ever going to get any better if they can only be best practice, whatever your current idea of a best practice is? I love that call out. The call out basically you led with was, once I define a set of best practices, it often leads people to stop innovating. So if I say this is the line, all projects hereafter need to have these 10 characteristics, these behaviors, these tool chains, whatever, whatever the definition of the spec is, this is a best practice. People will spend all of their time line following and not as much time figuring out how to add context-driven value for the client. I think that's also a really good amplification of why the manifesto may be written the way it is, which is, these are the things we prefer. These things are also valid. So they didn't disqualify. They just said, we favor these things in this context, but nothing about it is declarative that says, if you don't do it like this, you will fail. It just says, these have proven time after time to be valuable patterns by which we've all experienced value-based success with our clients. And I think to that point, oftentimes, especially large companies uh, will say, well, that works again, that this idea that works for a startup. That works if there's only 10 people. It doesn't work when you've got hundreds or thousands of people. It, it does work. Um, I've, I've seen it work. I've helped companies achieve this. Not the majority of companies I've worked with because they didn't want to believe it would work. They were too, uh, they believed that anything, any level of change is risk. Um, and so therefore it was more risky to make that type of change, uh, where something is believed to be, um, the level of, uh, perfectness is related to the, uh, lack of risk associated with something. The fact that we've done something three times and repeated it, well, it must have very little risk. Not necessarily. Um, but again, we, we tend to view things in these very uh, binary terms. Every day we should be learning. We should be innovating. We should, we should invite those things. We're, we're already saying we're welcoming changing requirements. But again, we're in an environment where uh, we're going to uh, find motivated individuals and we're going to trust them to get the job done. If these things aren't true, <laughs> 
let's talk about the measure of progress and how much progress you're really getting. Uh, are you really improved your delivery of value or are you just, uh, is it all on paper? So far, we're still talking about people. We're still talking about relationships. And I, we called it out a little earlier, but in my own personal experience, I have found the ability to adapt and add value to a client is absolutely directly proportional to the attitudes and aptitudes of the people on the team. So putting together your team, building your company, it's people. I, I completely agree. I think, I think the, another way to characterize that relative to, to this conversation is, does the team, when, when the team is discussing something, do they see possibilities or do they see constraints? That's the thing we talked about, create an environment and, and support them and then trust them to get it done. Well, that's part of the environment. And if your answer is, I don't know, or no, they see constraints. Well, if you're responsible for helping to build or support that environment, uh, you know, that's, that's a chance for you as a leader to say, there's a, we have a lot of room at, uh, we, where we can improve with agility. And I'm going to, this is, this is, this is the biggest way that I can help. So do your people see possibilities or do they see constraints? That is lovely. Wonderful, well-worded. Let me jump us to the next one because this is fun. Simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done, is essential. There are so many places to go take that conversation. Simplicity, from my perspective, one of its implementations is know when to talk, know when to shut up. To me, this is two principles in one. Uh, the first one is simplicity is essential. That's the key idea. Now, the second part of that, okay, well, simplicity could be in lots of different ways. That, that's very vague. What do you possibly mean? The art of maximizing the amount of work not done. You know, I relay a lot of uh, firsthand experience that I've had with teams where there was some desire by some leader somewhere to say, we need to do better. And uh, I would end up working with that group as part of that group in some capacity and <clears throat> would, at some point, you see a direct crossroads where you can either continue to always do whatever it is we've always done and we'll keep getting those results, um, more or less, plus or minus some, some negligible amount. Uh, and oftentimes, that, interestingly enough, that negligible amount the fact that it moved could be considered a great win, uh, you know, if the, if the politics are heavy in an arena. Um, but the reality is, knowing the distinction from my standpoint, who decides what's valuable. Left alone, a developer will struggle with the definition of done. If there is no declarative and there's no client interaction, and there's no one sitting around, the developer understandably wants to do a good job. They want to deliver value. They want to do the thing that's necessary in order to provide the win that the client's looking for. But absent a definition of done, there could be a whole lot of extra work produced that was never needed. And so one of the ways that I back into this is if we're doing these iterations or this frequent delivery and constant communication with the client, and we're walking together step by step by step by step, many moments a day, many days in the week, many weeks in the month, and so on, we're going to discover the definition of done together. And that means we won't have spent time building things that will never get used.
or building things that no one asked for, or building things in a way that they were never requested, because we were lockstep the entire time. So that's one way I back into this also is, if I have a frequent, iterative relationship with you, communicative and then deliverable for refactor loops and so forth, I deliver the thing that I need to deliver, nothing more and nothing less than we're done. And that helps manage my cost of acquisition and also impacts my cost of ownership in the long term. I think you pointed out some very important things for a lot of a lot of the, the business-minded folks. Um, I've used the same approach to help uh, to help teams and and uh, and leaders understand that the plan they have is most likely include some things that they don't need. Um, well, how do we identify which one they are? Uh, well, uh, first of all, let's make sure we're building the right thing. Have you talked to your customers? Um, well, you know, we talked to three, but I, I'm an expert in this area. I've been doing this for 25 years. I, I've, I've been in this role for 15. I, I know this like the back of my, have you talked to your customers? Um, and typically I can, I'll re, I relay one of the, my firsthand experiences about uh, dealing with a, a product owner, even a brand new product owner, never been a product owner before, uh, but someone who knew the domain and was willing to talk to the customers when none of the people above uh, this PO were willing to talk to the customers because they were so convinced that they were blinded uh, by their uh, their accepted understanding of what the customers needed, um, that they had built a backlog that was you know years and uh, out into the future. And uh, we were able to uh, talk to customers and identify a single feature set. Uh, and in a matter of uh, less than a couple of months, uh, we were able to start from scratch using a technology stack that was foreign to this company. And we were able to work in a very iterative fashion with new skill sets like user experience people, which were believed to be only if you're doing a brand new product. Uh, there was a lot of, of you're in a box and, and we've defined and shaded the box this way. And we were able to very focus on the simplicity. And for the first time ever in multiple decades at a user conference of this company, which is an international company, we were able to demonstrate working software ever. Typically, it's all PowerPoint. Typically, it's all wave your hands and talk about it. And typically, it's all VPs of, of whatever doing these type of things. For the first time, our new product owner, who'd only been a product owner now for a few months, was able to get up and say, we talked to these set of, this set of customers and their profile is like this. The, this is a set of features that, that we heard uh, from the market. Uh, here, let me show you what we've built so far and we'd like to get your feedback. Um, and for, as I understand it, for the first time, only standing ovation, because it was the first time that the users felt like they were being he heard. Um, this saved uh, uh, multiple clients who were basically waiting for this particular conference uh, and whatever was going to be shown to make the determination whether they were going to continue with this, this customer or not. And these are multi-million dollar international. These are, this, is the, this is the biggest of the big. This is not small fry. This is not a startup. This is a company that's gotten decades uh, uh, and they're number one in multiple markets around the world. And yet they were struggling with uh, putting things in a box and best practices and the way we've always done it. We know this 
our domain and our customers when in reality they didn't they somehow and i'm not this is not a blame this is not a a fault it's just a reality of some focusing on simplicity the amount of work that we did not do that was on the list was worth millions of dollars of development time not even counting uh, uh support and maintenance and training and all of that we did not do that and we delivered simplicity uh with a, a different approach to the point that Matt became now uh, the experience that they were looking for. They were looking for other parts of the system to now begin to behave this way and, and take the user as a priority. So it demonstrated a way forward where before they could never do it because technologically the, the legacy code, you know, the, the technical debt was just insurmountable. But here we demonstrated a, a new path forward uh, and again, got uh, firsthand customer approval. We got the delighted customer. They were the standing ovation. They're like, yes, this is what we want. When can we have it? Because obviously now they're seeing working software. Before we go on, I'm wondering if, if uh, an example for barbecue for simplicity might, might be useful. Um, uh, one thing that occurs to me is uh, uh, we've talked a lot about brisket and there's a lot of different techniques as we mentioned for different folks. Um, and they will swear that this is the way they get their uh, superb, repeatable results. But in the case of brisket, uh, a common strategy and what I was taught for pretty much every everything I ever saw was that you need to trim off almost all of the, the fat. Most people buy uh, what's called a packer uh, brisket. It's the, the big one you see in the grocery store uh, when it's on sale. Uh, for you know Memorial Day or, or where, whenever you can catch one on sale, um, and they're typically in the order from eight to, to twelve pounds, sometimes up to sixteen pounds. Uh, half of that weight is fat. Uh, the butcher cuts it in such a way that that uh, there'll be a, a fat on across the back, called the fat back or the flap, all the way across the the back side of the brisket. Um, and uh, I was taught, well, okay. More or less, it seemed that the general prevailing thinking was no more than an inch of fat. Now, you do want fat in general because the fat's what, what uh, melts into the meat and moisturizes it. That's the, 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 the chemistry that's going on on the smoker. But low and slow allows the fat to uh, basically moisturize and tenderize the meat over a period of time to the point that it becomes the, the soft, uh, tasty thing that, that you get out the end and you're going, yes, this is what I wanted. So uh, no fat, which I've actually tried that because I found some people who said, this is my strategy. I've tried the no fat. For me, that was dif more difficult. It was uh, not as repeatable. I, the results weren't what I was looking for. Uh, but all the strategies that I heard about cutting the fat, uh, literally, um, no, you know, pun intended, across the, the brisket, um, got me more or less the same results. So uh, when watching one particular guy uh, on uh, TV, uh, he, uh, he didn't trim any fat off his. And I thought, okay, uh, insanely enough, I haven't tried that. It, it's simple. You wash it, but don't cut it. Because trimming the fat from a brisket can take a, a good deal of time. So I don't, I don't uh, trim it. I put it on there. And dadgummit, if that wasn't... Uh, as good as anything else I had done as far as the level of effort that went into it. So the simplicity of that uh, turned out that it was essential in order for me to get an easier, a less time-consuming um, effort. And, and if you're doing multiple briskets, you can imagine multiply that times 
you know, four, five, ten, uh, however many you're doing. So this because you're actually simplifying the whole process considerably. Uh, it becomes now a much easier process for a much less experienced person to be able to get consistent results. Wash your meat. Don't worry about the fat on the back. Place it on the smoke. You know, use rub or, or marinate or if you're doing anything in particular there, um, and then put it on the smoker uh, when it's. Now, there's a few other things like uh, I've learned, for example, let your meat come up to room temperature. Uh, for years and years, I would take it out of the refrigerator, and we were concerned about the meat sitting on the counter for more than 10 or 15 minutes, uh, not being in the refrigerator. But in reality, the, the dense, density of the fat will keep the, the overall piece of meat um, at, a, at, a far, at a safe temperature for a significant amount of time. So it's, it's really not an issue unless you're going to leave it out, you know, half the day or something like that. So uh, even an hour, not a problem. So, uh, so there's things like that that just make the whole process simpler. Um, managing the fire can be the same way. There's lots of simplicity things, and they become about maximizing the amount of work not done. I don't want a 295-step method because it's complex, and, and, it, and my barbecue is the best. I would like to have a method that's four steps that I could teach, you know, my grandkids. Thank you for joining Derek and I as we explore the Agile Manifesto. I hope you return for the final episode of this series when we cover the last two principles. I also encourage you to subscribe to The Long Way Around the Barn. The Long Way Around the Barn is brought to you by Trility Consulting where Matthew serves as the CEO and president. If you need to find a more simple, reliable path to achieve your desired outcomes, visit trility.io. To my listeners, thank you for staying with us. I hope you're able to take what you heard today and apply it in your context so that you're able to realize the predictable, repeatable outcomes you desire for you, your teams, company, and clients. Thank you. Thank you.